0: amen well church you can have a seat this morning i'm so glad you're here with us this morning at providence north welcome welcome great job band um if you are new with us, we want to say welcome. We've got bulletins in about every other chair. We would love to connect with you. We would love to pray for you. We would love to get to know you. And there's a tear-off section at the bottom of that, and you can drop that in our giving baskets, our box, our poster sign, whatever that's called back there. And we would love to connect with you with a with a connect card and let you a little bit let you know a little bit more about who we are at Providence North. But if you are new with us, uh, we typically walk through books of the Bible. So we currently find ourselves walking through Paul's letter uh, to the church at Colossae, the book of Colossians. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you grab it? David read it this morning, or David read it a few moments ago. I'm going to read it again, and we're going to walk through a few verses this morning. It's one of my most favorite passages in all of the Bible. Um, Let's read it again and anchor our hearts and just direct our hearts to what God will have for us this morning. Colossians 1 15 through 23. This is speaking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present to you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, I don't know if you know anyone like this, but you kind of, we all have these folks in our lives, maybe you're one of these people, or maybe we all kind of have these little things that we are just no the nuances of everything about them. And when someone brings up those things, you just you just want to just go on your tirade of saying, oh, well, for example, like CrossFit people are tend to be like that, right? You bring up CrossFit, they're just like, oh, you want to, I did 100 box jumps, I did the Murph. It's like a different language. You don't even know what they're talking about. They just go off on all their CrossFit things. Vegans tend to be like this, right? They have, a, they have this idea. They want to talk about how you're an evil person because you eat meat, and then they want to uh, transition you into being The vegan diet, they just go off. When one word is triggered, they just kind of just word vomit all this stuff that's in their brains. Car guys are like this. You inevitably bring up uh, the word carburetor, and if it's a car guy, they just sort of go, right? And they just talk about all the car things. In Texas, barbecue, right? We have very strong opinions on barbecue. You bring up the word barbecue. See, up north, if you, Josh can attest to this, if you say the word barbecue up north, that just means you go over to someone's house and you grill hamburgers and hot dogs. In the south, it does not mean that at all. In fact, there are many nuances of barbecue uh, that we all have. So I'm an offset smoker guy, and so I used to be a Kamado ceramic guy, but I've moved on to the more pure form of the offset stick burner, and I believe that if you're a pellet guy, you're actually just a cheater. So there's this whole framework to talk about barbecue. Some of you are like, I don't even know what you just said or what that means, right? But it's a whole thing, and I could just talk about it. I know all the brands. I know the airflow. Why? I don't know. It's interesting, Wine and beer people are like that. They're like, oh, I taste fresh cut granite or grass and uh, hints of (laughs) rosemary butter. I'm like, it tastes like wine. It's like, what are you talking? Like, I don't, how are you detecting all these nuances? It's so strange and you just can go off on all of these things, right? We all have these things we're passionate about and we can just go off on, right? And uh, this is exactly what Paul is doing. In fact, I'm not really a movie uh, clip kind of a guy. But I, I, this came to mind as I was thinking about just these triggered responses. And so many of you remember that movie, The Sandlot. Anyone here Can I watch that movie? So The Sandlot, you've got the new kid on the block, Smalls, right? And Smalls is trying to be accepted by all the buddies, all of his baseball buddies. And he wants to play ball, but they don't have a ball. So he goes and finds the ball at his house and it is signed by someone very, very important, but he has no idea about anything that has to do with baseball. And so he's left uh, in the dark. And so watch this clip about his friends getting triggered about this one name. The beast got it. You're dead as a doornail, Smalls. You're dead as a doornail, Smalls. Smalls, you mean to tell me that you went home and swiped a ball that was signed by Babe Ruth? And you brought it out here and actually played with it? And actually played with it? Yeah. Yeah, but I was going to bring it back. But it was signed by Babe Ruth. Yeah. 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 You keep telling me that. Who is she? (laughs) What? What? The Sultan of Swat. The King of Crash. The Colossus of Cloud. The Colossus of Cloud. Babe Ruth! Classic, classic, right? there. are like, what does this have to do with Colossians? <laughs> the Apostle Paul just got done talking about how Jesus has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And the sheer mention, the thought of Christ's redemption sends him on this tangent. And if you'll notice, it's kind of like that. He's like... The Colossus of Cloud, the great, like, right, the the Sultan of Swat, the great Bambina. He's going, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He has done this. He has done that. He has done this. He has done that. That's who this Jesus is. You want to know who this is? And Paul just goes off. He has this triggered response, and he's passionate, and he just... He just goes from creation to redemption, all the benefits that this Christ has done for us and accomplished for us. He's passionate about it. The mere thought and mention of Jesus and his redemption just triggers this response in the apostle Paul. Christ is like this. Christ is like that. Christ is like this and that. And this is who he is. He's for you. He's with you. He's in you. He's made you. In fact, he holds everything together in the palm of his hands. That's the Lord Jesus. It's like that clip, the great Bambino. He's trying to get across the importance of Jesus. You have to know this one. Paul's reminding this church and he's reminding us of all that Christ is, that he is enough for us, that he is enough for us. He is speaking, the apostle Paul is reminding us and reminding this church he's writing that Jesus is enough. He is reminding us of the sufficiency of Jesus. He's giving us a vision of who Jesus really is, not who you just who you think he is, not who you've sort of made up in your head for him to be, uh, not your best guess. This is exactly who he is. This is, this is Jesus. And see, if you have a big enough vision, if you have a big enough understanding of Christ, uh, you can trust him in everything and he's enough for you. However, if we have a real small view of Jesus, he's kind of puny, um, he's weak, we're never gonna believe he's enough for us, especially when trials hit, especially when suffering hits. But if you have the view that the Bible takes of Jesus, that Paul reminds us here of, that Jesus is supreme, he's big, he's grand, then you can trust him that he's enough. You can trust him that he's enough. Now, practically what this text is supposed to do for us, what it's supposed to inspire in us is praise, is praise supposed to inspire in us praise. That's why we sing songs about Jesus that anchor our hearts to Jesus, that we sing about him because he's worthy of our worship and praise. And the things that move our hearts the most, these are the things that we write songs about. These are the things we write poetry about. These are the things we make art about. The things that are most beautiful, the things that are most lovely to us are the things that move our hearts to act and create and to sing and to have things of beauty around us that represent and remind us us of him. And in fact, this is exactly how Paul writes this. In fact, this whole section that we just read is written in sort of hymnic prose, the way that it's written in the original language. It's many uh, scholars believe this to be uh, a song or an old hymn that churches would recite or sing to one another to remind them of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's written in the form of a song or a poem. Because what poetry does, what songs do, what great art does, is it shows us uh, that in these moments when words seem to fail, we want to make things that even structurally are beautiful sounding and lift our hearts to connect us to what the beauty of the subject really is. And so Paul does that when he's talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ it's a song, it's a poem. Because mere words just don't even do it justice. Mere words don't even do it justice. One of my favorite poems, I have a little uh, poem and prayer book called The Valley of Vision. The things that stir us about the Lord says this, and it just, these things sort of anchor our hearts, and it reads like this, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but I see in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. In the deeper the wells, the brighter thy, shine, thy star shines. <clears throat> Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my valley. That's what we're looking at here this powerful passage of the majesty of Jesus and all that he has done. I love this verse so much, this collection of verses so much, I could preach for nine weeks alone on this. Uh, each phrase, each word carries such weight, but we only have nine weeks to get through all of Colossians. It's, it's weighty, it's beautiful, it's good. But we're gonna, we're gonna go quickly through all of it this morning. And the most amazing thing about this Let's take notice, notice of this as Paul takes us from creation all the way to the cross in this little hymn, in this poem. The highest of highs, the highest of praise, to the lowest of the lows. And all of it should inspire praise in us because of the beauty and majesty of Christ. So here's the outline verse 15 through 17 shows us Christ as the creator. Verses 18 and 19 show us a new creation that Jesus has made, and he calls it the church. So creation, new creation, the church. And verses 20 and 21 show us the cross and redemption. So we've got creation, church, and the cross. We've got the cosmic Christ, the maker Christ, and the crucified Christ here in Colossians 1. So verse 15, let's jump in. He is the image of the invisible God. Paul here, remember, he's got this triggered response. And he's like, he is this, he is this, he is this. And he just stacks all these descriptions of who Jesus is. And he begins this way. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now, this word in the Greek, I'm taking a Greek class right now in seminary. So the next month, forgive me, I'm gonna be showing off my Greek uh, lexicon knowledge here. So just bear with me. It'll go away after the class is over. Um, <laughs> But this word right here is the word icon. Now imagine this. This is where we get our English word, icon. You're welcome, okay? So this is what Paul is trying to get across. He is the visible aspect, accurately representing that which is invisible. Jesus is the visible aspect, the icon of God, that which is invisible, Jesus is manifest in that, meaning Jesus perfectly reveals the nature of God, the nature of God. Now, if you remember Philip in John's gospel, this is a great, Jesus says it perfectly here. Philip says this to Jesus, show us the father and that will be enough. And Jesus looks at him and he says, he who has seen me has seen the father. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. He is the icon, the image of the invisible God. So what does that mean? If you want to know what the invisible God is like, don't we all? What is God really like? What is he really like? What is his character like? What is, how would he act? How would he respond? Look at Jesus. Jesus brings crystal clear clarity to the question, what is God like? How does he respond we don't just believe in some god of our imagination that we've sort of made up but we believe in a god of revelation that's revealed to us here in god's word perfectly revealed what is god what is god like he is perfectly revealed in christ jesus our lord in jesus we clearly see him as creator and redeemer John Calvin, the old theologian, says this. In Christ, God shows us his righteousness, goodness, wisdom, power, and in short, his entire self. All of himself is found in Jesus. He goes on. Jesus is. He keeps stacking these phrases about who Jesus is. He is the firstborn of all creation, now, firstborn, you're like, well, that's sort of a weird thing to say. Does that mean he was created? I thought Jesus was forever. He was. This is not meaning that he was created. He's not a created being. Firstborn is not meaning that. In fact, this whole passage supports the preexistence of Jesus, that he was before all things, right? Jesus always was. Just read the next verse. He was, He, he was. he's always, he's been there since the very beginning. So this, this could, the, the preexistence, the term that he that it uses here could be translated he was like never, he's always been. We don't have a word for that in English. He created all things. So he was not therefore created. And so this word firstborn, what Paul is getting at here, means that he is supreme in rank. He is supreme in rank. He is firstborn of all creation. He has authority. He is supreme in rank. God's word is telling us that Jesus outranks everything and everyone in this world. What does this mean for us practically? He's greater than wealth. He's greater than sex. He's greater than power. He's greater than sports. He's greater than the Super Bowl. He's greater than... Uh, Kalachi's. He's greater than real true Texas, central Texas barbecue on a stick burner and not a pellet grill. He's greater than bone and ribeye. Whatever it is, right? He's greater. He is preeminent. He outranks everything. Paul's trying to just get our minds to wrap to wrap around his greatness. In fact, one of the best cross references for this meaning, firstborn, meaning rank is found in the Psalms. David, is Psalm 89 is referencing David. This won't be on the screen. But Psalm 89, 27 says, I will make him the firstborn, talking of David, the highest of the kings on earth. That's that same idea. Highest of rank. David, King David will be the highest of rank. Of his, his, he's supreme in rank of all the other kings that have come before him. And here Paul is saying, Jesus is firstborn of all creation, not just of kings, of everything, of everything. Christ has created everything, right? He is supreme over all of creation. There are many wonderful things in this world to enjoy, and we enjoy lots of them, and that's not to say we shouldn't. A good campfire A vacation to the mountains, looking at the beach, a sunrise, a sunset, a hard good day's work where you're just like, yeah, the work of my hands. Just those good days, a spouse, friendships. Those are all very good things. But Paul is reminding us none of those things are worthy to be worshiped. None of those are worthy to be worshiped. Why? Because Jesus is first rank among everything and anything that is made. Everything else is but a shadow. Everything else is but a shadow of that which is truer and better and more beautiful and more sustaining as Jesus. Verse 16 tells us why he created all these things. Tells us why. Why? By, through, and for. If you are an underliner or a note taker, those are important words. By, through, and for. All things were created by him, Jesus. All things were created through him. And because Jesus is the intermediary agent through which everything came into being. So what does this mean? Um, This means that uh, hot yoga doesn't connect you with the supernatural, right? It means that runners high doesn't connect you to the supernatural. It means that all these other ways that we're seeking to find a connection with the supreme are but shadows of what we're really looking for. Jesus is the one you're looking for. Go to him. He is the one who will connect you to God the Father. A vacation, time off, doesn't won't do it. It won't connect you to the creator. Only Jesus, all of these things that are good, that we enjoy, were created through him. So go to the ultimate thing, not the shadow. To worship the shadow is to worship idols that we bow down and give our time and life to. And notice the goal of creation. All things that are made exist for him. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. All things. That's a huge thought. If there is a made thing, in other words, Jesus made it. Jesus made it. Visible and invisible, he made them. So Paul's teaching there is a visible world and there is an invisible world. That's interesting. Jesus rules them both, Paul says. They are both for him, visible and invisible. What's one example of maybe an invisible world that we uh, maybe often don't think about that he is in charge of? Well, I I mean, just real practically, even our emotions, the things we struggle with, our fears, our emotional life, our emotional well-being. Jesus rules the invisible world of our emotions and our thoughts and our fears and our anxieties and all of those things. Jesus rules, and so you know, on a real practical level, Jesus makes a real everyday impact in our everyday world through even our emotions when we trust him as supreme and sovereign, he's not left us alone. That's good news for me. When you understand this about Jesus, he casts out fear, the scripture says. That's the invisible world. You can't tangibly quantify fear. Now, this is also speaking of the evil forces at work in the world, right? The visible world and the invisible world. But our Christ is in control, Paul reminds us. He's in control. Christ is with us. And church, this is how we can do hard things. This is how we can walk into hard places. This is how we can endure when difficulty comes our way because he's in control. He is supreme. He is sovereign over all things. And so we can trust him, church. We can trust him. We can even go through the valley of the shadow of death and we can fear no evil. Why? Because he's with us and he will comfort us. He's in control of the visible and the invisible world. We trust him. Verse 17, Paul is saying, uh, Guess what? There's more. He just keeps going. It's like the infomercial. Is that it? No, that's not it. There's more. Wait, there's more. Yes, there's more for four easy payments, right? But he's not doing that, right? He just, he keeps adding on Colossians 1.17. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So practically speaking, we were not created by some hands-off God that's simply just observing what's going on down there on earth. He didn't just sort of spin it all into motion and then step back and say, okay, good luck. Let's see how this experiment works out. That's not Jesus. Paul reminds us he actually holds everything together the cosmos, even, creation. He's the divine glue, so to speak. Christ sustains the entire universe. Therefore, life is not meaningless. The world, though it may seem like it to us, is not in chaos. And if Jesus can sustain the cosmos, he can sustain us. That's good news. That's our Jesus. That's Jesus in creation, as Paul just describes it. That's Jesus as the creator, He holds everything together. Now he goes on, verse 18, the new creation he's going to talk about. So Jesus creates something new. He creates earth and the cosmos. He holds everything together. And now he says, goes on, he says, this is what else he's created. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Notice verses 15, 17, and 18. It says he, he, he. Christ alone is the head of the church. To be the head of the church is to be Lord over it. He gives life to it. Christ is the leader. He is sovereign over it. Christ guides the church. He governs the church and the redeemed people of God, this new creation under his covenant, under his rule and reign. In the body, he uses us this analogy of the body, and it gives us these amazing insights into where we fit into this cosmic reality known as the church, Well, this means there's some mysterious and intimate union between Christ and his people. That's amazing. This creator now has come and created the church. And now there's an intimate union because of Jesus with us and our very creator. And now because of that, we know that the church is not just a building or a place you visit, But the church is a people, a living organism made up of members joined together by Christ as our head. And it's also the church is the means by which Jesus carries out his purposes and his mission on the earth as his body if we are the members of his body carrying out and acting out in accordance to his will and his reign and his rule as the head, then we are agents of his mission on this earth. We are caught up in something far larger than I think many of us care to even consider on a day-to-day basis as Christians. And it's incredible. And then in verse 18, he tells us why he's the head of the church. It says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The reason he's the head is because he is the the resurrected Lord. He is the firstborn from the dead. He was the first one, the firstborn, born again, sovereign, defeated death, in charge. And because he is firstborn, it's that same word again, supreme, outranking, because he is the firstborn from among the dead, meaning he conquered death. Now he has the power, the rank, and the authority to raise us up on the last day. That's good news. He's firstborn from among the dead. We could never do that. He did what we could never do. That's the good news of the gospel. He has the authority, firstborn. Verse 17 tells us that Christ can sustain us in verse 18, what we just saw here says that Christ's death can raise us. He is our great sustainer and he will give us new life on the last day. Paul goes lower still as he moves on. The cross, he mentions the deity of Christ in verse 19 and a restatement about the deity of Christ. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. This fully divine son of God, what did he do? He came to die on a cross. 19 through 20. For in him, Jesus, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, listen to this, making peace, shalom, shalom, by the blood of his cross. The blood of the cross. It starts with a lofty vision of Jesus and his importance and control over the cosmos and the universe, and it ends with a bloody mangled Savior. And it's all in the plan and heart of God for his redeemed people. His reconciling work happens through the work of the bloody cross. Now, Jesus, Paul speaks of the cosmic reconciliation. He's making all things new and personal reconciliation. That's the real Jesus. Cosmic reconciliation, he, he's going to make all things right, right? The scope of it, all things, he says. The whole created order, he'll restore all things, the fallen creation. How? The work of the cross. The cross has cosmic implications in reconciliation power. It's incredible. Um, David Garland, a great theologian, he's former president of Baylor University, uh, wrote these words. He says, the death of an obscure Jew... On a seemingly God-forsaken hill in a backwater of a Roman empire attracted no notice from the historians of the era. But it was the event that reconciles heaven and earth. The world may be corrupted, disordered, and ravaged by sin, but God still loves it. And God intends for it to fulfill its destiny in Christ. Sin has defaced Christ's work in creation but he comes to undo its consequences and bring concord and a universe out of harmony with God. Those are beautiful words. How did he make peace in a conflict-ridden world? By the blood of the cross. And now, we're gonna get practical as we close here. Um, he gets personal. He's gonna talk about personal implications of the cross. Look at how he begins verse 21, and you. So we have the cosmic redemption. Now he's gonna say, and you. And if you look back over all of these verses prior, what was he saying? He did this, he did that, he did this, he did that. He's over this, he's supreme over this. He rules, he reigns, he did this, and now you. It's personal. The cross has very personal implications. Why? Because Jesus cares about you. He cares about you. He cares about this earth and the cosmos and all the crazy stuff going on in our world. He holds it all together and he cares about you. That's astonishing. And he concludes by talking about our past, our present, and our future. Listen to this, uh, verse 21. And you who were once alienated, that means you're separated from God in our sin, and hostile in our mind, meaning even our thoughts were against him. And it gets worse, doing evil deeds, that's the past, that was you. He said, this is who you once were before Jesus. That's not good, it's bad news. Now, look at, But look at our presence. He has now, presence, reality, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. Here's our standing in Christ, Christian. Here it is, ready? This is incredible. Believe this, these aren't my words. This is in the Bible. In Christ, holy, blameless, and above reproach before him that same one we just read about that did all those amazing things, that holds the whole cosmos together, the palm of his hand. Paul says, you now, because of his work on the cross, are holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Wow. You're like, how is that possible? I'm not holy. I'm surely not blameless, and I am absolutely not above reproach. I got mad just driving over here to church today. In fact, I didn't even wanna come today, right? Someone dragged me here and I didn't even wanna be here. How am I above, how is that possible? Because of Jesus, because of the work of the cross. I am as holy as Jesus is. I am as without blemish as Jesus is. I am above reproach as Jesus is because in Christ, he is mine and all of his benefits are now granted to me through faith in Christ alone. You see the contrast of where we once were to where we are now? We were alienated, evil, hostile in mind. You cannot get a worse off picture than that. And then where are we now? Holy, blameless, and above reproach. The Bible tells us that we are far worse than we ever thought we once were. But because of the gospel, we are in a better standing than we could have ever dared dream. Past, present, and now future. We're almost done if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Paul says, persevere, stay near him, be steadfast, continue. He says a real faith continues in Christ. A real faith is steadfast in Christ because it's not you, it's him working in and through you. A faith that withers and dies, Jesus tells us in his gospel, is not a real true faith. So, There's constant admirations, there's constant encouragements in the scriptures to continue in the faith, to press on in the faith, to be consistent in the faith, to be committed to the faith. That's how we begin and that's how we continue. We start by trusting in Christ and relying on him and leaning in on him and his work and all that he's done and we keep doing that forever and ever and ever until we see him one day in glory stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Christ gives us hope. So we keep walking because of the hope we have in him. There's a hope laid up for us in heaven because of Jesus. And Paul goes on, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is Christ for you. How has he come for you? He came in humility. Um, He lived a sinless life for sinful people. He came and traded places with us, giving us his righteousness, making us holy, making us blameless, making us above reproach. And in this little insignificant town in the Lycus Valley of this small little church, Paul says the cosmic Christ The sovereign Christ, the one that spun the stars in existence and holds everything together is with you and is holding you and has made you new. Believe in him, trust in him, continue in him. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Christ is enough. Church, we're gonna remember Jesus in his power, in his might, in his majesty, that the work of the bloody cross has now given us life and redemption, that on our own, we cannot conjure up blamelessness. We cannot on our own conjure up righteousness and holiness on our own. We cannot conjure up being above reproach in the sight of this mighty God but Christ has come and done that which we could not do through the blood of his cross. And so we're gonna celebrate him and remember all that He has done by taking the Lord's Supper, by taking of the bread his body given to us on that cross and dipping it in the juice, which represents the blood of the new covenant, which now cleanses and washes us and purifies us of our unrighteousness and gives us his own. I'm gonna pray. Uh, the communion stewards are gonna come. And when I say amen, feel free to come to the front and take the Lord's Supper. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the image of the invisible God. Thank you that you hold all things together in the palm of your hand. And God, I pray for all of us in this room that knowing the reality of who you are, Jesus, and what you've accomplished, Lord, it should produce in us a calming that we would trust you in the midst of whatever we're walking into, that we would trust you in the midst of all that we have going on in life. And so, God, I pray this morning as we come that we would remember you would remember all that you've done for us through the cross, through your blood, and through your body given for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that your word gives us such a high view of him the correct view. God, I pray that we would hear it and we would continue and press on in the faith. You are worthy. You are enough. In Jesus' name, amen. Come as you're ready and take the Lord's Supper.